You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, we say it over and over. We mean it over and over. Welcome. We're really glad you're here at Grace Community Church. Uh, there's so many things that have already happened in the service this morning that have just taken my heart and mind to a different place as the team was leading us in worshiping the Lord through song a while ago. I just got a glimpse. By the time we got to um, <clears throat> in Christ alone, I was just imagining. I've never felt this before in any context. Maybe Scott felt it with a million people. But I just imagine us being around the throne singing together. I doubt we'll all be singing in English. Well, who knows what language it'll be. Probably Hebrew or Aramaic or I don't know. What, but we'll all be singing. Maybe we'll all be singing our, the, the languages of our, 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 our birth and our, our home. Uh, and we'll all understand and it will all make perfect sense. Uh, but what a blessing to worship together. And then Scott brought it together so beautiful. He said so much. In those few minutes, I hope you were listening. There were so many things that were being said. And, and pointed to the time of fasting and prayer on Wednesday. Look, you know who's usually here on Wednesday when we have, when we gather together after a day of fasting and prayer? It's usually the people who uh, have to be there for some other reason. Can I ask you to show up Wednesday night? Do your best to show up. Now look... Fasting, as we do this once a quarter, and we did it years ago when we were beginning to struggle financially. We went through a very brief period in our church history, in the entire history of this church, where we were struggling financially. The elders call for the body to come together, pray, fast, and pray, and ask God to meet our needs. And man, it turned around almost immediately. And when we offer this budget... In a few weeks, it's going to be an ambitious budget. I will say this, never have, has the church agreed, this is where we think the Lord is leading us, that he did not provide for where we thought he was leading us. I wish Scott could have shared that on a day where we have more people here. I do wish that. Um, but you see where we are. We got to go one way or the other. We either go to two services or we go backwards because that's the way it is. That's the way it always is, 80% rule. We're way over 80% this morning. And can I ask you, forget about the 80% rule. If this is where God wants you, be here. Be here. Join in with this body. Probably, if we continue like this, we have to go to two services next year. But that's going to be a blessing. I know some of you are already thinking, oh. But I can promise you this. The elders do not want to just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We want to start planting churches. We want to be a part of what God is doing in our entire area, not just in this little place. So be praying with us about this vision. None of that can really begin in earnest, though, until we get this building paid off. So let's get it paid. Man, I better stop or I will not get through. Uh, but you get the point. And by the way, if you, some of you can't, cannot fast for medical reasons, not many of you, but some of you have business obligations or other activities going on. I plan to fast earlier in the week, this week, than on Wednesday, but we ask that 
Tuesday night after dinner until Wednesday night after we meet together, that's when you break the fast. But if you can only fast for one meal or if you need to fast, as I am choosing today, from Carolina Panthers football, it doesn't mean I'm not going to record it and watch it later. I will be doing that. <laughs> but um, fast from something. Give up something to spend with the Lord. It's kind of a shame uh, the way the text uh, plays out, but God is sovereign over all of that, and that'll make more sense a little bit later. So fasting and praying. Speaking of giving, uh, benevolence giving is a very important part of our identity as, as a body of believers in this place. At the end of the month, every month we have an offering at the end of the sermon, um, and we take up a collection that is used to help people first in our body who are in need and then outside the body to show the love of Christ in both of those ways, here and away. And it's very important to many of you. And something happened last week. I can't remember what it was that happened. And we didn't have, oh yeah, that's right. I preached uh, way past uh, the time. And so the benevolence offering got uh, put aside. But so here's what we're doing this week, uh, this month. Please give double this month. If you want to put it, benevolence offering in any day uh, of the, any Sunday of the month, that's okay. But the deacons who separate the, the checks would really appreciate it if you would do it on the last Sunday of the month. Now, if you're not going to be here on the 28th because it's after Thanksgiving, give it before then. But really, give double and even more. It'd be great if we more than make up what we typically give on that. Well, <clears throat> some of these things will come back in, I, I am sure. If you have ever lived in a large city... I'm sure traffic patterns can be quite confusing to you. Look, I, you're going to think I obsess over Fuqua Verena traffic. If you think that's the case, you don't live in Fuqua Verena. <laughs> if you lived in Fuqua Verena, you would... Ha or if your commute took you through this not-so-sleepy and as little a town as it used to be, a Fuqua Verena, the place that my dad used to affectionately, jokingly call the garden spot of the world. Uh, then you ca just can't understand. Um, like so many cities, small and large alike, a lot of the planners just did not anticipate the level of growth when they were making the traffic patterns. Without question, the railroad in Fuquay uh, hinders any attempts at diverting traffic flow from current trouble spots. Uh, I, I remind the people... Uh, that when they complain about Fuquay traffic, we are indeed doing something about our infrastructure problems. We are building thousands of new homes. Uh, in addition <laughs> to the 1500s or so in North Harnett County, you know, that are going to be funneled in that way. You know, the book of Isaiah feels uh, like an equally... Well, in honesty, it is a much greater conundrum than <coughs> city traffic. And yet, as we were eloquently reminded two weeks ago when Pastor David <coughs> preached from Isaiah 55, God speaks to humanity's deepest needs. And whenever God speaks, His word accomplishes the purpose for which <coughs> it was intended. Excuse me. <coughs> when the children of God 
believe God at the levels he has called us to believe, peace resides in places that nothing else can touch. And then you spend 45 minutes going one mile in Fuquaverina. <laughs> what should you do then? Blow your horn? <clears throat> ah, do that number? No. Rest in the Lord and be righteous when the world is screaming at you that you have every right to be unrighteous. <clears throat> Today, <clears throat> we round the, the bend and enter the home stretch of the book of Isaiah's prophecy, which is, of course, God's word speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Over the next several weeks, we're going to explore some of the truth, not all of the truth, but some of the truth is that is in this last section, these last 11 chapters, Isaiah 55 through 66. We're going to examine some sections more carefully than others. This third and final section of Isaiah can be confusing to many because, you know, you, you've got three primary sections of Isaiah we'll get to in just a second. But it, it does not have, it, it, it just lacks the, the, the structure and the beauty of the first two sections. And so some people say, I don't know. I mean, I'm getting Isaiah all the way up through chapter 55, but I don't know what that last section's about. So in the same way that, that when you pull back from, from, from right in the middle, like when you're stuck in traffic and you think there's got to be a better way, you may pull back and say, no, there, this is the best way, actually. And it's just Create a little bit of a problem for you, but really, this is the best way to move traffic, and it begins to make more sense. Uh, that's kind of a, a poor analogy because God's word ends up making so much more sense than uh, humanly planned traffic patterns in cities where gridlock is common. Uh, you do get the confusion, though, when you just are sitting there thinking about, what am I to make of all of this? So in the first <clears throat> 39 chapters of Isaiah, which was written to the people of the 8th century BC, uh, God said through Isaiah, be righteous and trust me. Isaiah said, be righteous, trust God. You know a lot of people who say something very similar today. Well, just be righteous, do the best you can, and just trust that God is going to let you right into heaven because he just expects us to do our best. That's all he expects. Your parents say that to your children a lot of times, right? I just want you to do your best. Do your best on your grade, and we think that God operates the same way. It's just the way the world works. Do your best, and it will be okay. Um, do you see anything wrong with the order, though? We cannot be righteous until we trust God. Trust and obey, there's no other way. You can obey at some level without trusting, but you cannot trust without obeying. So the trust must come first. Uh, how would you do with this promise? Look, I don't mean to be snarky, but if you're saying, you know, I just, I think I'm going to be all right. I've done my best. I think God will accept that. How would you do with this promise? If you are perfect in every way for the rest of your life, you never again sin, and, and then God's going to be pleased with you and you'll be allowed into heaven. You say, no, wait a minute. I can't be perfect, and yet that is the standard. 
And that's the standard given in chapters 1 through 39. Be righteous at this level. Well, of course, the answer or the response is nobody can be righteous at that level. (coughs) That's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And then Isaiah 40 through 55 was written to a people who, these chapters were written to a people who 100 plus years later would be living in Babylon in captivity under a people who mercilessly oppressed God's people. These chapters offer hope even as they describe God's perfect plan for imperfect, sinful people. In fact, what's the plan? If we can't live up to the standard, what is the plan? Here it is. God's servant, the Messiah, will come live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death, bearing the penalty for sin. The effect of Jesus' sacrifice is perfectly described in the New Testament. Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sin. God declares us righteous when we believe. That is the promise. That's the promise of Isaiah 40 through 55. This morning, uh, we will enter the third and final section of Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66, and we will begin with a New Testament quote that sums up essentially what Isaiah is saying to his people or to God's people. Since all these things are to be dissolved, the world, the heavenly bodies, since they're to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting For new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's talked about in Isaiah 65. We get to that eventually. New heavens and a new earth. These verses summarize. 2 Peter 3 summarizes the truth of Isaiah 56 to 66. That's not surprising when you embrace the wisdom of Augustine's understanding of how scripture works. The New Testament is concealed in the Old. The Old Testament is revealed in the New. So if you just look at Isaiah strictly from, okay, let's see what God was saying to his people. It really doesn't matter what he says to us in our day. But all of this was pointing toward Jesus and and a full understanding of God's plan for us all along. So since these chapters are hard to mark historically anyway, we do get the sense that they're the people's when the people are coming back from Babylon. But, but truly, the function here is much more theological than historical. So we will look at this from a theological viewpoint than a historical one. So if some things, if I say, well, this is Jesus, of course it's not in Isaiah, but it is in Isaiah. It was already there. <clears throat> While it's true that this section was written to the people who returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. It was also written for all people of all time uh, who believe the promises of God, and that includes the church, and maybe especially the church. It was written for us, even though it went to the Jewish nation. So with the time that is left, I'm I'm only going to be able to cover three chapters in Isaiah, chapters 56 to 58. 
okay, I'm going to only cover three thoughts from these chapters. And truly, it will be up to you to absorb uh, all that is here, which I trust you will pursue this week. For today's reading, the text is Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. And since verse 1 is a summary of all that has been written before, and it's the foundation that is laid for the rest of this, pay careful attention when we go through this reading our text together. We typically stand, and I will ask you to do so as the scripture is being read. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the thing." Things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. <clears throat> These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Father, thank you for your word. Burn it deep into our hearts. Make us more like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, BC. There are three areas of emphasis in Isaiah 56 to 58 that will command our attention uh, this morning. God's love for all his people, including, and again, especially maybe, the marginalized. Two, the connection between Sabbath rest and godly joy. Three, fasting and the distinction between true worship and false worship. How long can we spend on each one of these? I would love to spend at least a week on each one of these. And in fact, even though we, we can't spend three weeks, we'll spend at least two. So I was just kidding earlier when I said we were going to go through all three chapters of Isaiah. Uh, these themes are way too important to, uh, to, to just cover in a hurry. So we'll only cover the first point today in Isaiah 56, 1 to 8. God's love for all his people, including and especially the marginalized. Notice that the point focuses on love, God's love for all his people. 
But doesn't God love the entire world? John 3, 16, thank you very much. Doesn't he love the whole world? Well, he absolutely does. That's the reason that the title of today's message is Yahweh welcomes all people. D.A. Carson has a small book called, uh, titled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Now, maybe you think the difficult, or excuse me, the love of God, the doctrine of the love of God is quite simple. It's easy to understand, and <clears throat> but a lot of people, we talked about this in Grace Connection, difference between simple and simplistic. You may have a simple explanation, but it's very easy to become simplistic in the ways that you think about God's love. Do not allow yourself to be swept up to say, oh, well, here's what God's love means. Carson says that there are multiple facets in, in his love. And although he loves the whole world, the facet of his love for the, for the covenant people of God shines differently. It shines uh, differently than, than, than his love for the world, just like the father's love for the son. That's a very unique love that's between father and son. And it doesn't shine in the same way the others do. If you're married with three or four or more children, you love everybody in your family deeply, I'm going to guess. But your love for your wife is different than your love for your children. And if you're single and you wish you were married, I do pray that this passage will be deeply encouraging to you. In fact, if you're single and you would like to be married, and you're not, and there are no prospects of that. First of all, look, we've had singles in our home group, and they say, I'm, I'm lonely. And we pray as a home group for the Lord to bring someone into that person's life. Sometimes, it, it, for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen. And if that's the case, God has promised. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, so I'll spend it right now and say, God has promised that he will give you a name and a heritage far better than anything you could possibly imagine. So if you're single, go to home group this week. And tell the group, hey, I'd like for you to, to pray for me. So, uh, John, you guys will have a long prayer time on a where a lot of the college students go, John and Jen, on Monday night, I suppose. Prayer meeting tomorrow night. Be sure to come to the prayer meeting Wednesday night as well. Um. Verse 1, since we're just working through this one point, let's, let's go through some of this scripture together. Verse 1 is a really important verse, not only in Isaiah, but in the whole Bible. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Now let's, let's say over here is Isaiah, no, it's left, okay, I'll do it over here. Isaiah 1 through 39 is here. Be righteous. Terrible, complete, utter failure. That's okay. God's righteousness will count as your righteousness. If you believe, if you trust that the Savior died for you, if you trust that the servant is going to take care of your sin, then you are now righteous. And now in chapters 56 through 66, he says, starts off saying, keep justice and do righteousness, which you might think is like, uh-oh, we're going back. To hear. But notice there are two types of righteousness in Isaiah 56 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon 
my salvation will come and my full righteousness will be revealed in Christ. All they had to do in the Old Testament to be saved was the same thing we do. Trust the promises of God. They didn't know Jesus was there. God knew he was coming. And he said, if you'll just trust me, then you'll be okay. And you will live the way that I want to. So instead of going backwards to just do the right thing, now you're saved. You've been, your sins have been paid for because of that. There is now a power living in you that did not exist before. You are able to do righteous, righteous acts and deeds because my righteousness is now living in you. Verse 2 lets us know that there are clearly defined expectations for God's covenant people. One of the great mistakes that we have made as, an, as American evangelicals is to think that the family of God ought to be like American culture, which is, hey, everybody does his or her own thing. What's good for you might not necessarily be good for me, but, but it's a free country, right? Well, we're moving away from that because it just can't exist as a culture. We're having troubles getting to where we ought to be. I, I, I will tell you that. And by the way, do not use, I don't care which side of the, uh, the political spectrum you're on. Tonight in home group or this week in home group, you're going to have opportunity to, to talk about this more. If you look at our political issues today regarding immigration and some of the other things, if you use this text as a hammer from either side, you're going to be missing a whole lot of what God is saying. Do not look at this politically because I'm telling you, you're going to make a fool of yourself when the rest of it is pointed out. There's a lot here that I can't say we can't cover in, in home group. We're talking about, today we're talking about God's instructions to the church and his indication of how the church is made up. So in verse 2, we have these clearly defined expectations. Now, it's interesting that the Sabbath... Even though this text has a very much a New Testament feel, the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not affirmed as binding on New Testament believers. The New Testament church met on the first day of the week. Uh, and if you will check your calendar, that is uh, today, Sunday. We meet on Sundays. Jesus rose from the dead on Sundays. It's not as clearly spelled out in Scripture as we would like. It is my command for the New Testament church to meet on Sundays. There's a whole lot that's not as clearly spelled out as you want, to, want it to be. And if you're not careful the way you interpret Scripture, you can find something in Scripture and say, well, here's what it says. And I think there, the Sabbath was never done away with exactly well if... God shifted the emphasis from this day of rest to the first day of the week, worshiping the Lord in a new way in Sunday in his word. And you're going to have troubles with the other if you go the other direction. Um, the, so, if Sabbath laws are not binding, then are we free from any notion of Sabbath rest and worship? In the same way that Sabbath was a mark the Jewish nation belonged to Yahweh. Our intentional worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on Sundays identifies us as his people. 
Now, we don't have nearly as many restrictions as the Old Testament saints had, but the principle of Sabbath rest was and is much more positive than negative, and I can't wait to talk about this next week. Uh, Notice also in verse 2 that in addition to specific instruction for ritual, a general command was given to avoid all kinds of evil. So the Lord is essentially saying to the nation of Israel, I want you to gather together on, on the Sabbath and I want you to put aside all your work and that's going to mark you as following me. But there are all kinds of evil that you need to avoid. It's not just how you look on, on, on Saturday or on Sunday morning. It's how you look all the time because you need to reflect that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Look, as we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, we are reminded that our strength to live this life that is difficult and is countercultural and, in, and more countercultural every single day, we can only do it through the strength that comes from Jesus living in us, the Holy Spirit living in us. There is always great danger, though, that as we acknowledge our inability to live the Christian life or to live the life that God has commanded and to keep the law, that we'll just give up trying and say, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus died for me. I'm, I, I, I'm saved now and I don't have to worry about that. I want to do my best, but if, I'm, if I fail, that's okay. No, that's not what Isaiah 56 to 66 is about. In fact, it's going to time and again say, there are two groups of people that call on the name of the Lord. Some are saved, some are not. And behavior is the key indicator. You live your life just any way you want to. And you show up on Sunday and you sing to the Lord. Then there's an indication that something is wrong. We are to live righteously because His righteousness is at hand. Verse 2 commands us to conduct ourselves as though God's righteousness does indeed live in us. So, this distinction between true believers and and false believers is going to be a focus over and over. So, if our focus is on how we are to conduct our lives, does that mean we do not need to worry about the form or any of the rituals of the Christian life? No, it doesn't mean that. This is... In a sense, I know we don't like the word ritual because it indicates something. But this is a ritual of the New Testament church. We are called to come together. We practice this form of our faith. We acknowledge our faith to the world. And we commune with the Lord and with one another as we come to the Lord's table. Even in these next, um, these next Verses that remind us that God saves the outcast and the marginalized of society. The Lord has expectations for his people. I'm going to bring in all kinds of people into my family, into my house. And then they're going to be expected to live a certain way. We are to reflect his glory. Verse 3 should make for interesting table conversation um, in your home. The Israelites had so focused on the form of the law that they had missed the spirit of the law altogether. When Jesus says over and over, 
You have heard that it was said, or it was written this way. But I tell you that the meaning of that command of the Lord was far greater. There's more to it than you want it to be. Because if you just know the form, then you can sort of work your life to live according to the form. But he says, no, 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 no. It's about the heart. And the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all else. Who can know it? God identifies or, or, or exposes our hearts in his word. But he's saying, when I said earlier that eunuchs were not allowed to be priests, his point was imperfections keep us from God. There was a much bigger lesson that he was saying. You have to be a perfect specimen to go into the temple and serve the Lord, especially in the inner, inner courts. And you had, you had to be from the right family. Everything had to be just right. And what about the lamb that was sacrificed? Had to be a perfect lamb. What's it all pointing to? Jesus. His perfection. We are imperfect. And he says, I'm not allowing eunuchs to serve there. And since the suffering servant has died for the imperfections of us all, all are welcome, including Moabites, Ammonites, those who were excluded in the law from the assembly. The Lord is saying, I am bringing foreigners. He says in this text, I'm bringing people in from everywhere. And you guys just have to get over it. What was that exclusion about? It's to, it's to remind us. That actions have consequences. <clears throat> and unless God does something about our condition, we are ever, forever excluded. The good news is that Yahweh welcomes all people. God gave both foreigners and eunuchs reason for hope. When as far as they could tell, there was no reason. Those who lived outside of the covenant nation of Israel said, I'm never, I would never be good enough to be brought. Who understood their sin, they, they, they said, I could never be good enough to be a part of those people. And, and, and eunuchs would say, those who, who could not reproduce children, could not procreate, would say, you know, what is the deal? What, there's no meaning to my life because when I'm dead and gone, there are no children to carry on my legacy. No, look, when, when you hear about a, a crash where an entire family is killed, what do you think about? How sad. How sad there's nobody left to carry on the legacy of that family. Think about someone who cannot have children. That's difficult. That's difficult. And so a lot of people say, I'm just not good enough. Look, the next few verses will provide unspeakable hope. But notice that God won't let foreigners or eunuchs feel sorry for themselves. Wow, I was really convicted with this text. What is it that causes you to feel sorry for yourself? home you grew up in, some physical feature, 
some relational crisis. God's word says this over and over when we're tempted to feel sorry for, uh, uh, stop it, stop it. You have me. I'm all you need. Why are we to stop feeling sorry for ourselves? Because his plan for us is amazing. So say verses 4 and 5, which we're not going to examine here, but we will in home group. In verse 6, another amazing benefit of God's plan is revealed. Foreigners will minister before the Lord as in the temple. Now that's just, again, the high priest was the only one that once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. And the Jewish nation was the, not only the Jewish nation, but, but service in the temple was restricted to the Levites, the tabernacle in the temple. Just one tribe out of all the others. How do you suppose the Jewish people missed the plan, though, on the basis of what God says like here in Isaiah? In Genesis 12, 1 and 3, when he called Abraham, said, you're going to be a blessing to the world and the, all the world will know me. Because of you. And then here. How do you suppose that, that, that the Jews missed the, God's plan to include the entire world in his covenant family? How do you suppose we can determine who we think is or is not worthy to be a Christian. To be in the family of God. Isaiah will speak much more about the unexpected makeup of God's family. Notice for now, though, that when we are brought into the family, God expects us not to go back, but we go forward and we live as obedient children of God, reflecting God's righteousness in our lives, our words, our thoughts, our actions in every way. Verse 7 reminds us that if we are brought into the house of God's blessings. It will be not because we made our way there, not because we were smart enough to figure it out, not because we earned a place there, but because we were brought by the Lord. God told the Jewish people that the temple would be a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just the Jewish nation, but for all peoples. Craig Blumberg informs us that rabbinic sources claim that Caius had moved the marketplace for sacrificial animals. You know, the sheep and the, and the pigeons and the different ones that were used in sacrifice. They used to be in the Kidron Valley, but now they had been moved into the court of the Gentiles. I don't know how much support there is for that. If Craig Blomberg says it. There's got to be pretty informed speculation that that was the case. But now think of what kind of a message that would bring or send to the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles were to come into the temple and they were going to worship the Lord even from a distance. But still they had a place in the house of God. And now animals are being sold. It's like you're excluded. Not you. Stay out. So, our hearts can be the same way, can they not? 
What if we had 10 homeless people come in one Sunday? What would you be doing? Not socially adept, smell bad. How would you? Look, I didn't, this is not, this is not a place for that. Now, we got to have respect. God says, yes, look, when you come in, I will change your life. But you don't get to determine who comes into my house. Except that we do have a say in it. And I can assure you that if we say, uh-uh, not you, based on anything, race, socioeconomic status, we stand under the judgment of God. This table says so. We stand under God's judgment. When we exclude anybody from worship. Now, if you're going to come in, there are expectations. And you can't just live any way you want. You can't take the whole thing another direction. But it's not... That you have to join our club. No, you're joining the church of God. And we take our instructions from here. And one of the things that this tells us is to live as though you belong to the Lord. It may just be one of the reasons Jesus cleared the temple. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table to engage in one of the most deeply meaningful rituals that the Savior left us left the, 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 the partaking of the, of the sacraments. And this time together at the table reminds us that Jesus died for us and that we're not good enough in and of our strength. When we make this nothing more than something about the form, it means nothing to us. Grace connection, we talked about it. Lord's table, baptism mean nothing apart from faith, but in faith. They mean far more than most of us are willing to uh, ascribe to them. God ascribes great meaning to this table and to baptism. So in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addressed and condemned the way that some believers excluded other believers from the table, distinguishing between the spiritual and non-spiritual. Get this. Based on how much money you make. Jesus, who Isaiah is going to tell us is come, coming to, to, to set free the captives and preach the gospel to the poor. And the poor are the ones that, that are so often attracted to Christ. Now we're saying that it's evident you're spiritual because God has given you a lot of money. And something's wrong with you because you don't have much money at all. And this after the cross, we never learn, do we? Who is invited to come to the table? Verse 8 tells us, in a New Testament context, of course, that it is all who the Lord gathers into his family and into his house. Not only the outcast of Israel, but many of those who were thought to be excluded from God's blessing. If you have acknowledged your sin before the Lord and you have trusted that Jesus died on the cross in your place as a perfect sacrifice, if you have said, Lord, forgive me for my sins, Jesus, my only hope is in you. You didn't have to use those words. Look, if you struggle with your doubting your salvation day in, day out, 
it's probably, you're not the one I'm worried about. I think almost certainly you're saved if you know this truth and you believe this truth. But psychologically, you just can't. It just keeps playing in your mind. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the person, and this is what Isaiah 56 to 66 is about. Do not think you can live any way you want to and say, oh, yeah, well, no big deal. God forgives. You can't. You can't. You're endangering your soul. Well, don't you believe that once a person is saved, he's always saved? Yes, that's what Scripture says. You know what else it says? If you live any way you want to and you don't, you don't care about it, you don't do anything about it, you're endangering your soul. It's a means of grace. God warns us, although he tells us, when you belong to me, you always belong to me. Is that confusing? Well, Scripture can be sometimes. So if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have been brought into the family and you're invited to this table. Look, if you say, I don't know about that Jesus thing, then let me just encourage you, when we come forward in just a few moments and partake at the Lord's table, we take the bread and the, and the juice that remind us of the body that was given for us and the blood that was spilled for the... Uh, sacrifice of sinners, then, then don't just come forward and, and don't take it. That's okay. I appreciate your honesty, or you can stay in your seat uh, if you want to. But if you have trusted Christ, you don't have to be a member here. Come and receive the elements of the Lord, at the Lord's table. God's word informs us you should know that this is serious business that we are about to attend to here at the close of this service. Our participation in this meal has been, through two millennia, a, a response to God's word. We come and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. It's life and nourishment to the believer who has given his or her heart to Jesus. At the same time, it is judgment to those who live carelessly and who speak and act as if God excludes some believers because they do not meet standards that humans have imposed. Look, I'm going to ask right now, I want to address this just a little bit more, but I'm going to ask the elders and the deacons and those on the worship team, if they would come forward, we will be protecting first and then uh, will invite you to come forward. I will give you uh, instructions on that in just a moment. But let me say this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about some of you are drinking, eating and drinking judgment or condemnation on yourself, he's referring to a very specific sin where they were doing what I was talking about a while ago. The rich were saying to the poor, well, God is surely judging you, so you don't need to... And, and so you, we can't allow you to participate. A lot of people don't participate because they think, oh, I've sinned and I'm struggling with the sin that I've been struggling with for a long time. The question is, according to the gospel, living the life, a, a life where you preach the gospel to yourself every day. Do you confess and, and repent? Do you repent and, and turn from that sin, even to turn back to it? I know it feels like a Roman 7 sometimes. I'm trying and trying, but I just can't get there. Well, you're not called to fully get there. You're not, none of us are going to be there until the day we stand before Jesus. 
So if you struggle with sin, confess your sin and come and freely take of this. The Lord does that. But if you arrogantly exclude others as they did in Corinth, that's not going to be our problem here. Or if you arrogantly live in a way that God clearly says is not accepted. And you just act like that's no big deal. Then be concerned about taking. Do not take of this because you eat and drink condemnation to yourself. And God has given us fair warning. So I'm almost never going to give that kind of warning before we come to the table. But there it is for today. Here's the way we will uh, partake today. We'll have elders and deacons will be set up in front of the four sections that we have. Um, there will also be uh, ushers to help you know when it's time for your group to go. Go to the section that is in front of you. If one section is done and another section has still got a big line, go. you can then move to another uh, section. You'll come down these interior aisles. You'll go back up the center aisle or the outer aisle. Um, and <clears throat> you will receive... The, the bread, which is gluten-free, by the way, the bread and the juice. And you can either partake right then or you can take it back to your seat. That's what most, most people do. But you are not required to do that. You can partake right then and there if you would like. But as we prepare for this meal, let me read words from 1 Corinthians 11. And, and here is the section where he is challenging the Corinthians on the way that they behave so that you'll understand what I'm talking about. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's sarcasm if you didn't get it. Paul is saying, well, of course there have to be divisions because some of you are so much better than others. And, and how would we know if you didn't have divisions? When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. How disgraceful, he's saying. How disgraceful that you, that you abuse the body of Christ, both this body of Christ and his body. Getting drunk at the Lord's table. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, that's all kind of harsh stuff. It, again, I don't think that this division stuff applies to everyone. But the, but the unstated fact is that we are not to play around with this meal. And if there's sin in our lives, we need to confess it before we come. Then he says, For I received from the Lord Jesus what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim it, the Lord's death, until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is serious business. But if we judged ourselves, truly we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So preaching the gospel to yourself every day involves some, oh boy, I'm wrong, Lord, please forgive me. And a discipline from the Lord and a discipline of yourself in the Lord's ways, in the ways of the Lord. It moves us to this life of righteousness that is his righteousness moving through us. And there's something that happens not mysteriously, mystically, but the Lord imbues special meaning in this ritual with, of which we partake this morning, in which we participate. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. What does it mean? I don't know. You don't know. It doesn't mean that we're sacrificing Christ anew, that he is in the, the bread. He, the bread and, and juice become the body and blood of Christ. But it does mean that we are nourished in a special way. And we find strength for living the life that God has called us to live. So this morning, let's take just a few moments. If you would, close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to pray silently about anything in your life that needs to be confessed. And do not fear coming to this table unless you are arrogantly living in sin and refuse to repent. But otherwise, please come. This table is for you. And we come together, this disparate group, this, this unlikely cast of characters that make up Grace Community Church and the visitors here today. God has brought us into his, his family and into his house. And now he's invited us to his table. So spend time confessing your sin and thanking God for the gift of the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, we... Confess that we are a sinful people. We confess that we think we best know how to order and live our lives. We acknowledge that we do not, that we are sinners, and that we fall way short of the righteousness of Christ. But in this meal, we acknowledge and affirm with our hearts 
that Jesus' words of institution, this is my body given for you. This blood is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins for many. We confess and believe that Jesus died for us. And so we approach this table with the seriousness that you call us to embody as we come. Father, um, we love you and we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us and leaving the Holy Spirit with us to guide us into this life of righteousness that we are incapable of living on our own. Nourish us during this time. We pray. Amen. Once again, Jesus said, this is my body. When he took the bread and broke it, he gave thanks, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The elders would come, and deacons who are serving. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.